who's been captured in a raid into Israel. So this little servant girl, a very big contrast in every way. Naaman, we read, is a great man. He's highly regarded. He walks and talks the language of greatness. He is what we would call a somebody. Everyone's heard of him. He has status. He has a wife with plenty of servants. He's no doubt very rich. If he was with us today, he would, I'm sure, live in a gated community away from the riffraff. Um, he would drive a Lexus at the very least, or more rather, he'd probably have a chauffeur to drive him around. That's what it would be. Maybe a private jet. That's the kind of guy we're talking about. Naaman is a somebody. But he has one big problem that he has no idea how to cure. Money won't do it. Influence won't do it. He doesn't know how to do it. He has an infectious skin disease, leprosy. So that's Naaman. On the other hand, we've got the servant girl. She's different in every way possible. She is a nobody. <laughs> we don't even know her name. And as we'll see, that's the point. This person who seems so insignificant plays an important part in God's plans. I don't know about you, but I find that very reassuring. Someone who is insignificant in the eyes of the world, who's not famous, who's not an influencer. I was reading about those as people I've never heard of, but I was doing my homework. All these folks that have a million followers and some of the Scottish ones only have 27,000 followers instead of a million, but hey, let's not complain. But these are the kind of people that are somebodies. But this girl is a nobody. We don't even know her name. It's not fame. It's not fortune and power that are important to God, but rather faithfulness to him in and willingness to speak and act for him. Those are the character traits that are important to God. So we have this little servant girl. She's far from home. She'd been taken captive in a raid across the River Jordan, uh, and she was now far from her native land of Israel. I'm sure she's lonely. Different language, different customs. We're not told that she's being ill-treated, but life would not be great for her. If you're a Filipina maid in Singapore, or if you're an African maid in Saudi, life is really hard. But this little servant girl has one thing that Naaman, for all his riches, for all his status, doesn't have. She has faith, a living faith in the living God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. She's serving in the household of pagan worshippers, remember. But like Daniel many years later in exile in Babylon, she has kept the faith. She's not blended in in a wrong way. She hasn't let it all drift as she moves away from home, as she moves away from family. That can happen, can't it, when people leave home and move away, go off to uni, move to another city to work, perhaps. But this girl still worships the living God. 
for all her seeming insignificance or actual insignificance in the eyes of the world, she has great significance as a child of God. And she has faith that God will be able to cure her master, Naaman, through the ministry of Elisha, the prophet, back home in Israel. So what does she do? She acts. She, she knows things, but she does something about it. Often, as Christians, we can know things, but it's actually quite hard to act on it, especially if we're maybe having a conversation that someone seems quite an important person and we wouldn't really know what to say or we wouldn't know what to say to our neighbor. So she's willing to give it a go. And she goes up to Mrs. Naaman, her boss, and says in verse 3, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And so she's been willing to give it a go. She's been bold, let's be fair. And he also is willing to give it a go. People generally are, aren't they, when they're desperate, when there's nothing else, when there's no medical cure, when there's no, nothing that money can sort or status can sort or influence can sort, they will take anything. So he's willing to give it a go. But remember who Naaman is. He's a great man. He's important. He knows how the world works. He's not going to go directly to some nobody country prophet that no one's ever heard of in a despised foreign country that they've just raided. Some flunky that no one's ever heard of. Important people deal directly with each other. You've maybe noticed this. A chief executive of one organization does not write an email to an office administrator in another organization. He writes to his equal, his uh, other CEO. That's how it works. He'll deal with his own kind. So Naaman gets his own king to write a letter, not to the prophet, but to the king uh, of Israel. King on king correspondence, you might say. And he also packs a load of money. Surely money is the answer. Surely money and power are what make the world go round. That's what so many people today think, don't they? But as we'll see, it isn't so. So off he goes, clutching a letter from his king addressed to the neighboring king, the king of Israel. With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you, you may cure him of his leprosy. That's not quite what the servant girl said, was it? He didn't say, go to the king and he will cure you of leprosy. Um, not surprisingly, the king of Israel thinks this is all a, a huge provocation. His neighboring king is surely trying to pick a fight by asking him to do something that he knows full well he doesn't have the power to do. Why would you do that if you weren't going to just try and pick a fight with someone? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? And how is he trying to pick a quarrel? So see how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. And he tore his robes. That was a, a very Middle Eastern way of signaling his utter despair and fear. But the story doesn't end there. We now hear from the prophet Elisha, successor, of course, to the more famous Elijah. This is the prophet that the servant girl meant when she suggested 
that General Naaman travel over to Israel in the first place. Verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Make this man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So trundle, 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 Naaman arrives with his huge entourage of horses and chariots at Elisha's little house, uh, probably just a hut or something like that, um, a humble dwelling, certainly not the kind of place that important people would normally be going to. So he trundles up there and uh, expects, of course, Elisha to come trundling it, shooting out. But he didn't go out. He sent his own servant, he had a servant, out to Naaman with a message that was quite unexpected. Go and wash yourself seven times in the River Jordan on your way home and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. And Naaman's like, what? Is that it? You mean to tell me that I've come all this way to be told to go and bathe in that piddling little river you have. And he roared off in a fury, saying, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. And don't even get me started about rivers, he's thinking. Are not the rivers of Damascus in my homeland better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he stormed off in an absolute rage. And friends, this is a perfect illustration of why the grace of God is hard for many people to accept today as well as back then. People come along to church knowing there's something missing in their lives, perhaps, and they hear that getting right with God is by believing in Jesus and trusting in his death on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins, and they say, is that it? Yep, that's it. That's how we get clean on the inside. For sure, God then uh, sends his spirit into our lives to change us, of course, to conform us to be more like Jesus. But um, the believing is the thing, believing that, that actually he died for me, not just for people in general, but for me. All my wrong things were laid on Jesus so that I could be free. Well, Naaman didn't think much of what he had to do to go and get cleansed. So what exactly was his problem? Simply this, he was too proud, too proud to accept the solution to his problem. Wash seven times in a little river. Does this country prophet really expect me great man as I am, to do something so demeaning, to humble myself like that? Well, it's just as well for Naaman that his servants toddled after him and, and reasoned with them. They said this, if a prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you to wash and be cleansed? And so this great man, this general, went down dipped in the Jordan seven times and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Eventually, you see, he swallowed his pride and he obeyed the one simple thing that had been asked of him. 
He recognized his predicament. He humbled himself and he obeyed. He stepped out in faith, if you like, stepped into the water. Well, why, you can see, I hope, why this uh, ancient account from the Old Testament is such a good illustration of what's so amazing about grace. Our predicament is not that we have leprosy. Our predicament is different, it's more universal. The Bible calls it the problem of sin. Sin, not just doing some really bad things like murder, it's more deep-seated than that. Sin is, is, is a barrier between us and God. Instead of putting God first, others second, and ourselves last of all, we, our human nature turns that over and we put me first, others next, and maybe God, maybe God, down the pecking order as an afterthought if he's there at all. And time and again, we humans find ourselves not doing what we should do, not saying what we should say, not even thinking what we should think. And that is a result of sin. And because we're all made in the image of God, everyone's made in the image of God. That means every human being in the world has um, value in God's sight, has status in God's sight. But we have this predicament. Because we're all made in the image of God and we're intended to worship God and to give glory to him. Because that's the way we're designed. We're designed to give glory to someone that's not us, but is our maker. And when men and women don't do that, they direct their worship elsewhere. Because we're all hardwired to worship. So if we don't worship God... We worship other things. Idols, false gods in the Bible and in many cultural traditions today, that means worshipping something made of stone or wood. That's what's usually meant by an idol. And that's what Naaman previously did in a temple dedicated to false gods. But even when people don't do that, we say, well, we don't do that. We don't worship stone and wood and things. <clears throat> they dream up imaginary idols. As the Christian teacher John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. <laughs> For some, their idol is money. For some, their idol is success. For others, their uh, idol is their job. For others, their idol is acceptance. What other people think about their social media posts, putting the phone on at midnight to see how many likes there are. And you know, that takes you down a road to nowhere because we're not designed to worship other things. We're designed that God is the most important thing in our lives, should be. Look what happens if you question, for example, someone else's Gender identity, as it's called, called, is treated as a blasphemy. Why, why such a strong reaction? Because that is where people put uh, their whole identity instead of identity as a child of God. When we humans don't worship the living God as we were designed to do, we don't stop worshipping because we can't stop worshipping. We worship other things. We can't stop worshipping. We even end up worshipping ourselves. We can find other outlets for worship, even 
good God-given things like our families. Great. God is the giver. Families are a great gift. Even those can become idols if they are the most important thing in our lives. So really anything that's more important than God can become an idol. Instead of looking at the gifts he's given us and worshipping them, we worship the good God who gave us the gifts. Well, unlike Naaman in the Bible passage, our predicament is not that we have leprosy. It's different, more universal. Sin estranges us from God and renders us guilty in his sight. When we see the fruits of that all around us, wars, greed, racism, sexism, anger, the demeaning of other people, demeaning of women, demeaning of other groups, all of that. If we're honest with ourselves, though, we know it's not just a problem out there. It's a problem that we do too. Not all of those things, but the problem isn't always out there. People who do really bad things that we wouldn't approve of. There's running down someone's reputation behind their back. Maybe in the coffee room at work or waiting outside the school gates with other parents, waiting for the kids to come out. There's borrowing from a colleague and forgetting to repay the debt. And yes, if we're honest with ourselves, we know it's not just a problem out there where others do really bad things. Perhaps you're an exception. Hands up if you're an exception. No hands up, okay. Well, if all this is a bit depressing, of course, the bad news is only to make the good news shine brighter. We've had dreadful weather in the last couple of days. Where's the sun gone? It's hiding. It's gone on holiday or something. And it's been so gloomy and good thing you were able to get to church today through all that flooding. But all that gloomy stuff is the best background to when the sun comes. It'll be wonderful. And talking of sin only clears the way for the good news that Jesus sent that God sent Jesus into the world, not only to show us how to live, but to die a sacrificial death, to free us, not just from the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin in our lives. So that those who trust in Jesus don't face the judgment of God at the end of our days, because Jesus has already faced that on our behalf on the cross. Naaman just had to do one simple thing to be cleansed of his leprosy. And we only have to do one simple thing to be cleansed of our sin, to believe that Jesus died for us, for you, for me. Like Naaman, that simple message is sometimes resisted. You've maybe found that if you try and share your faith with others Believe in Jesus and the cross? Is that it? Something so long ago, so far away? How can it have anything to do with you? Something so straightforward. A clever person might be looking for something more grand to uh, be a framework for their life, a great philosophical system that he or she can grasp uh, with their advanced intellect, I don't know. And here's me saying, believing Jesus on our behalf. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. A person well up the career ladder thinks, well, that might be all right for some people, simple people, but it's just too unsophisticated 
for the likes of me. And guess what? That's the very problem that Naaman had, isn't it? Right there. Or someone may feel they've just messed up their life too much. There's such a, a mountain of bad choices in their life in the past, ignoring God, hurting others, being hurt by others. Surely it's impossible for that burden to be lifted. It's surely impossible to get a fresh start. When my wife and I were young Christians and, and keen to share our newfound faith with a family member, we got this reply. Well, that's nice for you, and I'm really happy for you. But you see, I used up all my rope a long ago, long ago. The belief was that God gives you a certain amount of rope, you know, to help you in life, and then you use it up by messing up repeatedly. No, I've, it's, it's beyond, it's beyond. But that's not the way it works. That's why God's grace really is amazing. And no one is beyond the power of God for a new start. Believe in Jesus' death on your behalf, turning away from God and turning towards God, and you'll be forgiven and reconciled to God. Is that it? That's it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, as the hymn says. Some people think the word wretch is a bit strong. <laughs> Not at all. If you think that word's a bit strong, let me suggest you haven't understood how holy God is or how far short all of us fall from that holiness. Another problem Naaman had in the closing verses of our passage there, um, verses 15 and 16, another, another problem Naaman had is this. He wanted to pay. Remember how he'd brought all those horses laden with shekels of gold and fancy clothing? You know, I'll pay. And after he was cured, he went back up the hill to Elisha's house and wanted to pay for his cure. But the prophet said, no. Why was that? Because the gift of cleansing was free, without charge. And that's another reason why the grace of God is so amazing. Not only does it mean that God doesn't condemn us, not only does it give us a fresh start, but it's free. In our pride, we have this unfortunate tendency. We want to recommend ourselves to God in some way. Hey God, have you noticed I'm not really such a bad person? I come to church most Sundays. I even give to good causes. Look at all I've done. Surely you must accept me. And that brings us straight back to those verses in Ephesians 2, which we could have up now, please. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. Jesus once told a story that shines a light on this very same issue. It's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. A Pharisee, a religious man, and a tax collector, thought to be the lowest of the low. Like our Old Testament story, two people. The Pharisee prayed, how? He prayed about himself. <laughs> he prayed about himself. You know, oh, look at me, Lord. 
God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. The tax collector stood at a distance looking down. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said this most surprising thing to the hearers round about him. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God, went home right in God's eyes. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, of course, there's a good place for good works, for having our life turned round. It's a loving response to what Jesus has already done for us. They're good things we do are the proof that we've believed in Jesus, the proof that that belief has taken root. For we are God's handiwork, Paul says, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's so important that we get this the right way around. It's not that our good works are some kind of display to show how God, how better we are than other people, how we're worthy of his love. That's what the Pharisee tried. It doesn't work. Not that we're to say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not like other people who are worse than me. I'm a good person, really. But anyone who thinks that is not relying on the cross of Christ. So we don't do good works or good deeds to recommend ourselves to God as the Pharisee in the parable Jesus told did. Once we've humbled all our pride, got rid of our self-reliance, got rid of our self-importance, how self-important we can be sometimes, and come to Jesus believing that his death on the cross puts us right with God in a way that we could never earn for ourselves. And then we find a new peace in our lives, a new purpose in our lives, a new structure perhaps in our lives if we've had a chaotic life, a new balance, a new love for others. And best of all, it's all free. God's riches at Christ's expense. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. And that's what's so amazing about grace. Now, in closing, this may be way familiar to you. I've not been to this church before. Maybe you hear this every week. I don't know. If so, then I'll just say this. Don't let familiarity breed contempt. That's an expression, isn't it? A proverb. Familiarity breeds contempt. Don't let it happen. And do let familiarity lead you to do what the servant girl did. To recommend the solution to others. She had a lot at stake, you know, going up to her boss, the general's wife. You know, she might have lost her place there. She might have been put in prison. She might have been thrown out in the street. But she knew that she had the solution. And we do as Christians. You may think you're not very well equipped for that. Well, the servant girl had no special training, but she knew this. She knew how to point people to the source of amazing grace. But if this happens to be a bit new to you, if you've seen how amazing God's grace is, then I'll just say this. Don't let the moment pass. God's amazing grace is for you. 
Believe in your heart and you too can be freed from the terrible disease that drags us all down, the disease of sin. And Jesus will come into your life and help you to change and to become more like him. Let us pray.